Caitlin Kalina, a public relations major at SMU here with co-host and fellow public relations student, Lauren Montgomery. Welcome to Hello Hilltop. Today we are interviewing SMU alum, Maura Scheffler, the Deputy Director of Programs and Marketing at the Arts Community Alliance, which we will refer to as TACA. An accomplished violinist, Scheffler graduated from SMU in 2011 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in music. She then went on to receive her MA and MBA in Arts Management and Business in 2013. During her time at SMU, she was a marketing intern for the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and a community engagement intern for the Dallas Theater Center. She then got an internship with TACA, where she was able to grow and take the reins as the Community Relations Manager and Deputy Director of Programs and Marketing. Welcome, Maura, and thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to do this for SMU. Awesome, thank you. And our first question is, why did you decide to become a violinist when you were younger? I started violin lessons very early, like many. I was six, I think. I was in the first grade. And I think, you know, initially, I just really enjoyed it. I, I liked going to orchestra class, the kind of collective nature of it, which is how I would say it now. And it was a challenge. You know, it was, it was physically difficult for me, but I really enjoyed trying to figure out how to tackle that challenge. Um, but as I got older and I became more technically advanced at the instrument, I really understood what a, what a gift and what a form, um, incredible form of musical expression and emotional expression that music and playing the violin was. And I really um, was something that supported my growth and discovery as a person, that, that emotional expression as a young person trying to like figure yourself out was just, um, was truly something that supported me as I grew. What made you choose SMU and to pursue a degree in music? SMU particularly um, was an interesting sort of fortuitous choice, if you will. So I went to a few different um, schools and lived in a few different cities before I ended up at SMU. Many music students go to uh, universities for a specific teacher. They're following that teacher. It doesn't really matter <laughs> where they teach. And so I had, I had done that, went to school at University of Oklahoma. Um, I went to the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto, Ontario. And then um, I took a year off uh, and moved to New York and was taking lessons with an amazing woman at the Manhattan School of Music. And my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, is an SMU alum. He's a bass player. I, we had met at a, a summer festival. That's kind of band camp for college students, like a place to, to professionally and uh, hone your craft as a musician in the summer months. He convinced me to add SMU to my audition circuit. And so, and you know, he is an alum. Obviously, he felt um, very strongly about the quality of the program. So I was like, oh, you know, okay, I'll take a lesson, I'll do it. And she and Kim, who was my, ended up being my uh, studio teacher, um, my private teacher, was incredible. I took one lesson with her and I was just amazed by her pedagogical approach, her compassion and her thoughtfulness. And so 
I ended up giving it a go. And then they, they gave me a, a, a scholarship, a bigger scholarship than the other places that I was auditioning. So it worked out. And, you know, I love the idea of being here in a, a market that I think is maybe less entrenched and, and old, <laughs> if you will, than New York City or some of the some of the arts communities that have just been around for longer because the cities are older. Um, but um, I also knew in the back of my mind that SMU had an incredible arts management program. And I had started to, the wheels in my head had started to turn like, you know, I, I don't know if this performance thing is really for me anymore, but, but I don't know what else is out there. I don't know what that means. And so I sort of, I think, unintentionally set that up for myself. <laughs> um, but um, that was a big piece. And I, I cherished my, my three years in Meadows exclusively. And then my two additional years kind of straddled between the two sides of Bishop. Awesome. And what is one of your favorite memories from being a student at SMU? There are so many um, on and off campus. You know, I transferred in at um, 21. So my, um, my experiences at SMU were very, uh, were different than someone who just comes in straight out of high school into undergrad. I, I would say all of my time down in the practice rooms in Meadows were eventful. Uh, the practice rooms, if you haven't been down there, are this like kind of like little hole in the basement that are teeming with like creative energy and, you know, people practicing away and then um, they pop out and talk to their friends and go get a coffee. And it's like till all hours of the night, like it's, it's crazy. But I would say one of my most emotional memories was one of our first Meadows at the Windspear concert. So the Windspear Opera House down in the Arts District opened in 2009. And so once the Windspear opened, Meadows started to do both Meadows at the Meyerson and Meadows at the Windspear. It sort of became an alternating, at least that's how I perceived it, tradition. And uh, there was a year uh, that we were playing Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings, which is an incredible piece for string orchestra. And our conductor, Paul Phillips, Dr. Paul Phillips, had an accident and was not able to conduct the final performance. And it was like right before the final concert. And I just remember sitting in the pit, playing this piece, feeling like we were all playing this piece for him together as a group and like kind of like this grieving, sad, emotional, beautiful experience because he wasn't there to share it with us and we'd worked so hard with him to shape this piece but it was um I think that's the kind of experience that speaks to that real collective nature of playing with an ensemble and an orchestra that you know I have never found matched in anything else <laughs> in my life and it was truly extraordinary what about the field of arts management made you want to pursue a master's degree in arts management and business administration, or as I've heard Dr. Gallagher and Professor Hart call it, the Mamba program? What kind of work did that entail? It took me an extended few years to finish my undergraduate. I went to school um, at a few different places before I landed at SMU. Um, I lived in Toronto and New York City. And um, I think 
the people I met along the way and the experiences that I had really showed me a lot about what wasn't working in the arts ecosystem. I knew people who were extraordinarily talented who couldn't get jobs. Some of those experiences and, and things that I observed in those years before I got to SMU and, and you know, I had this idea or notion in the back of my head that, you know, SMU has this great arts management degree uh, program in addition to the performance program that's so highly um, sought after. So um, that was in the back of my mind. So I think over time, for me, those experiences that I had um, made me start to consider that maybe there were other ways that existed for me um, that I could support um, the field of arts and culture and, and classical music. And maybe I wasn't best suited to be a performer. Maybe that wasn't my place. Um, as I started to think about that, I finally got up the guts sometime during my second year to go talk to Zani Voss, who um, I so incredibly, I have so much respect for her, um, but I was terrified of her. <laughs> for no really good reason other than um, she was this tremendous figure who I wanted to make a good impression on. So I went and met with her and she said, you know, you should maybe do the Summer Business Institute over at Cox in, I think it's an executive ed, and um, figure out if this notion of yours um, that you might want to do this is, is true. So I did that and I realized that, you know, I had this vision of myself as a very creative, free-spirited, bohemian young artist who didn't like math and wasn't good at any of that stuff. And I actually realized that I liked that stuff and I was pretty good at it. <laughs> so um, I did that and then I took the leap. I decided to change my bachelor's of music track to a bachelor's of arts in my third year of my three transfer years to finish my undergrad. Um, and I took the GMAT and somehow I managed to get into the arts management program, which we do fondly call the Mamba program. Um, and then the, the real work kind of began because, um, you know, we had a lot of fun, but getting two master's degrees in two years is not easy. And, um, I also think musicians and artists, um, really tie a lot of their identity to their artistry and their craft. So having to kind of like rediscover your place and your confidence in what you bring to the table when you feel like a fish out of water just on the other side of, of Bishop was, was really a challenge. But, um, you know, you take MBA classes just like the rest of the MBA class. You take additional coursework that is your MA in arts management that is specific to fundraising in the arts, marketing in the arts, how you budget and manage finances for a nonprofit because it's totally different than the for-profit sector, uh, what strategic planning looks like. Um, so there's a lot uh, you have to do. And on top of that, this is one of the bonuses. You get to go to uh, Mamba's in their second year, go to Bocconi University in Milan, um, which was an extraordinary experience to see the differences in the arts and cultural sectors in, in Europe and really be immersed in, in that, in the arts and cultural economics program at Bocconi, which is 
just truly um, extraordinary. So it was, it was an incredible experience, but one that has been invaluable to me as I made this transition and this identity shift from being an artist um, to being uh, someone who, sometimes I joke uh, with friends, I transitioned over to the dark side, the other side of the arts, but because um, often there's some tension between those two, but as I made that transition from artist to arts manager, um, I couldn't have asked for a better skill set than the one that I gained at SMU in the Mamba program. That's amazing. I think especially helpful for people who are thinking about maybe doing that master's program, the two programs that you did, for any of our listeners who are thinking of doing that. And can you talk a little bit more about your personal relationship with music and the arts and why they're so important to you? Absolutely. This probably sounds a little cheesy, but I believe truly and with every fiber of my being that life would be so boring without art and without music. I I don't know if it registers for everyone, like where art is present every single day. The fabric patterns and textures of your clothes are probably the output of an artist. Um, Your wallpapers, your rugs, like TV commercials have to be scripted and creative directed and produced like your favorite movies and even some of your commercials, like some, some, some of the best commercials are amazing because of the music that's in them and film scores are these works of art that sometimes disappear into the background of a movie, but are what make the movie so great. Um, elevator music, it's literally everywhere. And, you know, even though I made the decision to move away from being a performer and a practicing artist, music and art is important for our humanity and for our souls. Um, that's why the arts exist. They add color to life and to our world in a way that nothing else really can. And so I, I feel so passionate about the work that I now do because I know that even if I'm only doing a tiny, tiny little bit to help ensure the sustainability of that work, um, for this generation and for the generations of artists to come, and the color that they'll bring to this world, I'm all in. How would you define your current role at Taka? So my current role at Taka is all things mission. So all of our grant making and service programs for arts organizations in this community, um, that's my primary territory. And then um, in addition to that, how we talk about that mission in our work um, in the context of the institution, how we market and message that work that we do, that mission and our purpose. So all of our, I, I both oversee the strategy for and the execution of all, uh, well, prior to COVID, all three of our grant making programs that we traditionally run, and then a multitude of different service offerings and initiatives, some of which are kind of staples. We have a workshop series that we, that we do for local arts managers. Um, 
but we also, you know, take advantage of and are flexible to respond to different opportunities as they arise. For example, um, since the pandemic started, one of the things that we have done in conjunction with two other partners in the community, the Dallas Area Cultural Advocacy Coalition and the Dallas Arts District, we're working to survey and track the impact of the pandemic on the entire arts community. That's not in our normal portfolio, but it's something that was really important that emerged in the landscape of what we're all living through. And so we have um, taken a leadership role in helping make that possible. That's amazing, that's awesome. And can you talk about your time at Taka and how your role there has evolved over the many years while being there? Since we know that you started out as an intern there in 2013, and how did the experiences from your internship form your career path? So at Taka, I started, as you said, as an, as an intern working on a conceptual social media project. So um, essentially a, a potential new non-grant-making program, which was not something that Taka really did at that point. And as my internship um, in the spring of 2013 was ending, Taka was getting ready to launch its very first um, non-grant-making program, which was this um, shared community marketing database. And um, they needed someone with a skill set to do that. And as it turned out, coincidentally, the firm they were going to work with to do that the firm's founder, Rick Lester of TRG Arts, the late Rick Lester of TRG Arts, had been one of my professors. So um, it just made sense to them to, to hire me. And I was actually Taka's very first non-administrative, non-revenue generating position. We are an organization that in many ways uh, operates like a grant-making foundation, but we raise all money every year, so um, annually. So the idea of having a position on the staff that didn't generate any money was very unusual, but um, I, I was that person because they were getting ready to to launch or to explore the launch of this new community database program. So with that addition, um, as that program got off the ground, it made sense for mission programming that was living in um, as a kind of ancillary on the plates of other staff members. So mission programming was not their primary responsibility. Um, it just was kind of tacked on. Um, it made sense for that programming to move over to me. And so I essentially started to just collect a portfolio of programming to live on my plate until it became too much. And then um, we, in 2015, we hired my colleague, Greg Ortel, who's another Mamba alum um, from 2015. Um, and we've been, um, we've really enjoyed and had a lot of success working together, I think because thinking about program strategy, new program development, all of those are very business oriented skills. And so those are things that we knew how to do and how to experience with um, thinking through because of our training at SMU. So we just slowly, essentially a department that was mission based emerged because of my, my hiring. And I think the acknowledgement of our board that there's so much that this organization can offer if we just centralize those offerings 
and resource them and focus them. And so that is, um, that is what my hiring started and has grown into for the organization. How has it been being the director of programs and marketing during a time of COVID? It's been like painting the walls a new color every week. So flexibility um, informed by listening to our stakeholders, to the community has really been the name of the game. So prior to COVID, we had a pretty established set of programs that Greg and I had grown over the years. I've now been there um, seven years. Greg is, has been uh, with me on that journey for five of those seven years. Um, but we had this pretty established set of programming that we were running each year and refining as we went to make it better. And we essentially had to take all of that programming and put it on a shelf and start over. <laughs> um, you know, we, we realized very quickly that we needed to um, come up with programming that was more responsive and sensitive to the needs of organizations in a landscape that emerged like overnight. Uh, I was just um, telling someone the other day that two days after our Silver Cup luncheon on March 10th of this year, which is a big fundraising event, we, um, we hold to honor two people for their extraordinary volunteer contribution to the arts. Um, two days after the Silver Cup luncheon, there was an announcement that we were going to have an optional work from home just as a precaution. And the next day they were like, just kidding, don't come back, <laughs> stay at home. Um, so um, we realized pretty fast overnight, really, that nothing was gonna be the same, that everything we did was gonna need to be reevaluated. As an example, um, every year since Taka's inception, essentially, because it's really our cornerstone offering, we've run a program that's now called the Arts General Operating Grant Program, which provides unrestricted grant dollars to nonprofit arts organizations, primarily serving Dallas County every year. And um, that program is based on the ability of 50 plus volunteer panelists to go and observe programming of organizations who are applying for funding go experience those pro those programs in person and everything was closed and canceled so that wasn't going to work <laughs> at all um and those cancellations created really dire needs in the community so um, we very quickly had to say okay what are the greatest needs of organizations like this week and this month and what are what can we do to respond to those needs and provide them with the support that they need and so that is what we did we have like rapid fire reinvented and pushed out new revised offerings to support organizations based on what they need at that moment sometimes literally at that moment that's great. I feel like definitely since COVID, it's like you have to rewrite the whole script of everything you do. And so Absolutely. I was 
I was wondering, do you have any favorite memories from your career thus far? We have ac- accomplished a lot um, since I started at Taka. I think um, I've heard many board members say that we are not the same kind of of mission organization that we were five years ago. We're operating on a different plane. Um, you know, I would say two things. Um, I have a, I am incredibly proud. Uh, um, in 2016, we made a decision as an organization to take a look at our Arts General Operating Grant Program, our program that is our oldest cornerstone grant-making program, and revise it because there were things about it that continue to come up year over year that just were not working the way we wanted them to work. And so um, we embarked on what turned out to be a (laughs) two-year odyssey to um, revise and roll out those changes. And I think um, the, the process that we followed ha- had a lot of rigor and our intent with that rigor was to instill more rigor into our grant making um, program. And I got to work with incredible, thoughtful volunteers who were really passionate about TACO, met some of whom have been grant uh, panelists for us for 20 years, um, who had really witnessed um, uh, our long history of, of how we did things and um, had a lot of feelings on how things needed to change. And so that process was incredible. Um, we worked with an um, unbelievable woman, Laura Einspinier, who used to be on our board, who worked at American Airlines when they went through their big merger. She was a tough cookie, but she was incredible. And so I have a lot of pride in what we came out with on the other side. And I think that critical process and the, the muscles we had to flex and, and, and learn um, how to use in that process, those are the kind of things that prepared us for being able to pivot to our response um, to COVID, to make that shift as rapidly as we made it. I think the very first program we pushed out the door, which I'm, that, that pivot um, in the COVID landscape um, for Taka is also something I'm, I'm very proud of. Even though it wasn't always pleasant, every minute of it wasn't pleasant, but we churned out a new grant making program that provided emergency funding to organizations in like two and a half weeks. <laughs> we put what we were doing on the shelf, started over, pushed it out the door. And so, like, if you really stop to think about it, that's pretty cool uh, that we were able to do that. Um, so those are some, those are some moments of real pride that I have in the work that, that I have done. There are many others, but those are two that stand out. What are you looking forward to in the future in terms of your career? I think the arts sector in many ways may be accelerated by the challenges the pandemic has posed and some of the weaknesses I think that it has exacerbated. I think the arts are at the start of some really major transition. 
we as a sector have already had already started to work through some of these challenges like our accessibility the positives and negatives of america's system of philanthropy and philanthropic funding how rapidly technology is changing and how that is changing profoundly how people can and want to consume art so those are really big challenges that definitely can seem a little daunting but i also believe that each of those brings an immense amount of opportunity um, i think i've had the privilege to grapple with some of those already in a small way in my career thus far but i um i am genuinely excited to be a part of unpacking those challenges and the experimentation and the innovation that will flow from those that grappling and and learning um, and leading to solutions that will result in a more sustainable and dynamic future for arts and culture. And our last question is, what advice do you have for current SMU seniors who are about to join the workforce? So I think something that I wish someone had told me was that the two most important things you I believe that you can do are to be humble and to work really hard. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons I have learned in my career so far is that academia teaches you a ton. I will never ever say that my um, my experience and my training at SMU was not valuable it was absolutely invaluable but getting out into the workforce and figuring out how to apply that knowledge in real life in the workplace is a totally different animal so that's one and i think one other may be um, to be open the world around us more than ever is changing so fast i know people say that all the time but like for real it's changing really fast and you know, I've done things in my time at Taka that when I was in school, I never would have envisioned those being part of my job. But those experiences actually teach you a lot. <laughs> so be open to those new experiences and to what they can teach you because uh, learning comes in different packages once you're out of school and you have to be open to those to really reap the benefits of them. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much, Mara, for joining us today. Don't forget to catch our other podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Make sure to follow us on social by visiting our Facebook and Instagram accounts at SMU Hello Hilltop, where you can find behind-the-scenes info and upcoming podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you on the Hilltop.